Welcome to the resource room. I'm Amanda, the blogger and TPTer behind the Primary Gal. As a special education teacher, you are always supporting others, students, parents, general education teachers. But who is supporting you? That's where this podcast comes in. It's my mission to give you the help and support that you need. I'll be sharing my tips, tricks, research-based strategies, and professional development. I'm here to help you grow and learn as a resource room teacher. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the Resource Room Podcast again. I'm so glad to have you back on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here again. (laughs) Yes, again. I'm so happy. I feel like we had a great chat last time, but we didn't cover all of the things that I feel like you have to share with the world. So before we really, really dive in, if you want to remind listeners a little bit about you, it can be quick because hopefully they'll go listen to your last episode if they want a full rundown. But who are you and what do you do in the world? My name is Stephanie DeLessie. I'm a veteran special education teacher and IEP coach. I've been in the realm of ed- special education for, oh my goodness, 12 plus years now. Um, I've taught inclusion resource, self-contained. I've done K-12, to lots of different settings, all of things four different, six different, I'm certified in six different states. I've taught in four different states. And right now I am an IEP coach and I help teachers learn all about IEPs and write better IEPs. I feel like for some of us, we might feel like total rock stars when it comes to writing IEPs, or we might feel like total failures. Honestly, it could go either way. And as you and I were talking, you even said what you're finding is that some people who might consider themselves a an IEP expert or writing IEPs is something that's easy for them, they're actually making a few mistakes and they're actually doing some things. I, I'm going to say wrong. I don't love to use that word, but wrong. Yes. And I am so excited to talk about this. We were having a great conversation before we hit record and I just, I'm excited to loop everyone into what we were talking about. Exactly. And honestly, before, you know, I, before we hit record, I always kind of run through what I want to ask teachers and what the topic is and that kind of thing. We had two other topics and we talked ourselves into this one. So (laughs) maybe that means those other two topics are Stephanie returns three and four times. I don't know. (laughs) I'm here for it. I'm here for it. (laughs) Well, so let's talk then about that big, big mistake. What's Mm -hmm. the big one that so many teachers and you and I are included in this either are making or have made. Oh, we're starting with the good stuff. We're hitting, we're hitting, we're in a home run right off the bat. I'm here for it. So the biggest mistake that I see, and I will throw myself under the bus. I did this as a first year teacher, probably the first five years of teaching because I didn't know any better Mm because we don't get trained on how to write IEPs. Never. We just look at IEPs that were handed down to us. And everyone that is listening, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, either I do this or I've seen this. Oh my gosh. So writing 80% accuracy on all of your IEP goals, and sometimes it even goes further to say 80% accuracy in three or four trials. Some version of that is pretty much on every single IEP you will ever see written. (laughs) Definitely. And what is wrong with that? What 80% sounds really good. That's a B, right? That's good. Why is that wrong? Oh, there's so many things. So it's not wrong, 
but it's not individualized. So mm. when you are writing IEP goals and you are choosing criteria, there's different criteria you can choose for IEP goals anyway. When it comes to writing behavior goals, there's a whole other list of criteria you can choose. So you have accuracy, duration, frequency, all of that for writing IEP goals. So your criteria that you choose for an IEP goal should be based off of the data that you have in the present levels. It should be based off of the baseline data that you have on those goals that you are proposing in the IEP meeting. So let's say you have Stephanie in your IEP meeting and you want to start working on answering what questions. So before that IEP meeting, you should have a couple of points of baseline data to back up in the IEP meeting and say, this is the proposed IEP goal for Stephanie. Here are some data points of where she is now. And this is why the criteria is what it is. Yes, you can write 80% accuracy. There are some things that absolutely 80% accuracy is great. But there are other skills where they have to know it to 100% accuracy. Like maybe you're working on a life skill of walking across the street. And if you say, <laughs> Stephanie will cross the street with 80% accuracy, that means every eight out of 10 times she crosses the street, two of those times, she's not going to look and she's going to get hit by a car. That means when you're doing the alphabet and you have 26 letters and you're like, Stephanie's only going to learn it to 80% accuracy. That means she's only going to learn what? So that's five. So 20, let's just say 20, 21 letters of the alphabet. What are you going to do when she, you're reading and you don't right. know all the letters of the alphabet? There's certain skills that students have to know to 100% accuracy. But the flip side of that is also there are skills where based on the data that you have in the present levels, where it is completely okay to write, Stephanie will do this skill with 30% accuracy, or Stephanie will do this skill with 50% accuracy. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I actually encourage you to do that more often than writing 80% accuracy. Let's say we have a parent who even maybe is a fourth or fifth grade, you know, has a fourth or fifth grade student. So they've had several years of this 80% accuracy business. And then they sit at a meeting with Miss Delessie, and she says, we're only going to go to 30% or 50%. I feel like I'd be a little scared to say that to a parent yeah. after years of 80 or 90 or 100% right. or whatever. What are your thoughts on that? How would you explain that to that parent who's used to 80%? Absolutely. And this might even come into play with admin who are saying they have to have goals written to 80% accuracy. And I've That's spoken true. with teachers who their IEP writing system automatically says 80% and they can't write anything below that, which is wild to me. So this might not just be a parent conversation you're having. It might be an entire IEP team conversation that you're having. The one thing that's really important, and I mentioned it prior, is that you want to make sure you have that baseline data. So that baseline data is going to back you up when you say, Stephanie is only going to, we're going to practice this skill to 50% accuracy. That data is going to show. So maybe Stephanie is only doing what let's, what's a good skill that we can just randomly throw out there. Let's say she's counting to 20 and they're, they want it to be 80% accuracy, but you're like, no, for whatever reason, let's just say we're going to, we're going to recommend 50% accuracy for that skill. One to 20, I would say a hundred, but we're just going to 50% for this. And they're like, well, no, she needs to be 80%. But based on the data right now, maybe Stephanie's only doing it 5% of the time. So you want Stephanie to go from five 
to 80 in a school year. Is that possible for Stephanie? You have to look at the data. Can she make that progress in a school year? Look at the data. The data is what's going to guide you into making those decisions at the table. Just because, you know, they, it's what you've always done doesn't mean that's what's right. Um, so that data is really what is going to set you up for success in advocating for your student to have not only the most appropriate IEP goals, but also the most appropriate criteria to go along with those IEP goals. I also think too, you know, some of that you could be looking at how long did it take that student to get 5%, you know, to yeah. 5%. And if it took two months, then getting to 10% might be two more months and two more mm -hmm. months. And, and we all know sometimes things just click and they take off. Right. But especially students with maybe more intense needs, that might take a longer time. Yeah. And you can look at prior progress monitoring data and say, well, here's our previous IEP goal. Here's where she started. Here's where we ended, you know, with the annual IEP goal. It took us 12 months to get this much increase in accuracy. And on average, I mean, you can look at the data. On average, Stephanie makes 27% an increase in mastery over 12 months on math skills or whatever it is. That is going to show you the data and tell the team and make them step back and think, oh, well, going from five to 80 really is a huge jump. She might be more comfortable around 50 because that might even be pushing it. You can also tell parents and the rest of the IEP team when you're there, we're going to set this goal for 50%. But if Stephanie meets it mid-year, like maybe it just clicks in her brain and she gets it, we can come back and amend that and change the IEP goal or update the criteria. It's not set in stone. But my professional opinion is, you know, here's the data based off of our previous progress. Here's where I think that she should be. And then the team can make the decision for if they think that's appropriate or not. And to me, I almost think after you lay all that out, if you have the data to back what you're saying, who can argue that? That's true. And if they do, then maybe they have something that you're not seeing. But more than likely, if you know your student well and you have that data to support kind of their their rate of learning or rate of progress, they're not going to argue that. Yeah. If you data is not an opinion, which yep. is that's on your side, that is your benefit. Data is fact. And if you have all of the data and you can explain it to the parent and the rest of the IEP team in a very simple way that is saying they're sure we can write 80, but I'm telling you based off of our data, she averaged 27% is the mastery that she increases over a year. So we're looking at more of like a 45, but I'm stretching it a little because I think she can do it if we set it to 50. I think that sounds perfect. Now, what about then your next mistake? What else do you see special education teachers doing when they write IEPs? One of the mistakes that I see frequently and that other, all of you listening are like, oh my gosh, yes, I've seen it. I know it, I've inherited that IEP, is when you copy and paste things from either one student to another or one year to another, whether that's present levels, whether that is IEP goals. There's nothing wrong with having a template or having an IEP goal bank. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think that's a fantastic idea because that helps you speed up the, the IEP writing process. Where the mistake comes into play is when you copy and paste an entire IEP goal and throw it into somebody else's IEP and don't change anything, especially that criteria, because that criteria, like we just talked about, has to be individualized. But you'll see present levels with the wrong name, the wrong mm -hmm. pronoun, the wrong grade level 
the wrong evaluation data. You'll see IEP goals with the wrong name. The skill might not even be fully correct. So it's just caution to the wind here. Just don't copy and paste anything from one IEP to the next. Do you suggest, because this is something that I tell, especially new or newer special education teachers, I'll tell them to start a Google Doc or start something where it's more of a template. And Mm -hmm. then instead of Stephanie's name or Amanda's name in there, it just says student in all capital letters. So that that signals me to remind it. Do you think that's a good solution? Or do you have another suggestion of what might help teachers not make that mistake? No, absolutely. I think I even have with at the intentional IEP, my website, I have a present levels template that has all of the wordage and then the teachers fill in the rest of the blank for all of the different parts and sections of a present levels. And I think IEP goal banks are great. That is what the intentional IEP membership is. But there comes a time and a place where you do still have to make sure that the student's name is correct, that the skill aligns with the present levels and all of those things. You still have to do your due diligence as the teacher. You can't just copy, paste, change a name and call it done. You still have to look at the data and make sure that it all aligns. Yes, that's perfect. And whenever you said don't copy and paste, I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I've literally been telling teachers to (laughs) copy and paste. But I agree with you in the right way, because we would never want to be writing Amanda's IEP and suddenly Stephanie's name is in there and a parent read through that and catch us. That would be embarrassing and terrible. I mean, you know, like that, that's not good, especially even considering confidentiality. I mean, just seeing somebody's first name isn't going to be a dead giveaway as to who it is, but it's not good. If you, well, if you're in a self-contained class and all the parents are friends, you know, in self-contained classes. That's true. And they've been in the same class, Stephanie and Amanda, for the last three years, parents are going to know who it was. So I'm all for copying and pasting. Just don't do it verbatim from one IEP to the next. Even from one student to the next. Let's say you have Stephanie's IEP from fourth grade, Stephanie going into fifth grade. You don't want to copy and paste that present levels directly over. Um, I've sat in IEP meetings. I've made this mistake where some of the data came over from the last IEP and the student had made progress. But I remember it was the same verbiage because that was the data. The student didn't make progress. But I had to explain that. And it took 45 minutes in an IEP meeting to explain to that parent, you know, why the data didn't change. Why is the sentence the exact same as the previous present levels? And it was just, I had to have the data to back that up. So imagine a parent sitting there seeing the same exact data in the present levels year to year. You better make sure that you have new data to back up why you haven't changed anything. What other mistakes do you see special education teachers making? One of the other biggest mistakes that I see teachers making, and it's no fault of our own, and it really depends on the, and when I say parent, think caregiver, whoever is in charge of that child. Um, not including the parent or the family in the IEP. And it really does depend on the student's home life and everything that's going on at home. We know that some parents, some caregivers are more inclined to be involved in the IEP process and others are not based off of things they have going on going at home. Um, But really making sure that you are including the parent, the caregiver to the best of your ability And not only their voice in the IEP, but also making sure that they understand what it is so that they know like all of our tricky words, all of our acronyms and jargon, that they understand it and understand what it means. 
and that, you know, Stephanie, that Mrs. D is going to be doing this with, with Stephanie in class. Um, and then all of the other teachers are going to be doing all of these other things. And this is what it means. And just really explaining it in everyday terms to the parents so they understand what it means. I think that's smart. And so how do you recommend, you know, we know we have a hundred things to do when it comes time to write an IEP. How do you do that? Getting that information or that feedback from parents, how do you do it quickly or efficiently? Yeah. So about 30 days out, depending on when the student's IEP is and if it's a re-eval year, because we know sometimes that takes longer. So Around the 30-day out mark from the IEP meeting, I will send home a parent questionnaire, caregiver questionnaire. It goes home, it's front back, and I let the parents know that it's coming home. I'll just send it in the child's backpack, or if I know that I can send it digitally, I'll just send it to them in email. And they just fill it out and send it back, and then I will use that data to help draft the present levels. Before the IEP meeting and before I send home that proposed draft IEP, I will call the parent or have a conversation with them, whether it's at bus duty or they come in or however that works, we could have a virtual call. I'll have a conversation with them just to make sure that what I am reading and understanding from the questionnaire is what they meant so that I can put it in, in the correct terminology in the present levels. So then we can build the rest of the IEP from there. And that sounds very easy. Something that's quick for you and quick for them. Yeah. Yep. What other mistakes, or I think if I remember right, you have one more for us. What is your I other do, mistake? yes. I have one more. And now some of you listening might be like, well, I, I do this, so it's not a mistake for me. Depends on what state you live in and your district's policies for, for this mistake, but not sending home that proposed draft IEP prior to the IEP meeting. This is a hill that I will die on for those of us who have worked in districts that are like, no, you're not allowed to send home a draft IEP because it's predetermination. There is a point when sending home a draft IEP is predetermination. I am not saying that that is incorrect. However, when I say send home a draft IEP, I only mean sending home the present levels because that's all data. And as we already talked about, data is fact. Data is not going to change. You can change the wording, but the data itself is not going to change. And then sending home those proposed IEP goals and you'll notice I keep saying proposed because it can change. The present levels can change. The data is not going to change with the wording. You might add some things, take some things out. The IEP goals can change completely from what you send home in that proposed draft IEP versus what you talk about at the IEP meeting. But sending home the, the present levels, is that's not going to change. There's no predetermination there. And then sending home the IEP goals, the proposed IEP goals, because based on the data and the present levels, that's what you're going to get your IEP goals from. So there, it's like breadcrumbs throughout the rest of the IEP. Those two things are what I recommend sending. It gets a little gray and fuzzy when you move into like the accommodations, modifications, and supports. I don't send that. I know that there are some teachers who do. It's a little gray for me personally. I wouldn't send them. Um, but you can for sure send them and say we can change them. But this is what I was thinking about for these IEP goals and all of that good stuff, but making sure that it says proposed and that you're not sending any other part of the IEP home when you send home the present levels and IEP goals. There are some IEP writing systems who you have to start a whole new IEP and then you know start from scratch for that annual IEP. But then there are some where it fills in the previous IEP and you change things. So you don't wanna send home last year's IEP with this year's data because then all the service minutes are in there and it can be misconstrued as predetermination and just don't even print those pages. Just print the present levels and the IEP goals and send those home 
and let the parents look at them. And I recommend doing that a minimum of three days prior to the IEP meeting. I have sent them as far out as 14 days prior to the IEP meeting. So I think seven to 10 is the sweet spot. But if this is new for you, definitely give it the three days and then it's going to change your life. Do you have a form or a template or anything where you could take, because like my IEP system creates a draft for us, but it's like you said, where it's pulling everything that was there Mm -hmm. from the previous year. So for me, the easy way would be to create a draft, send it home, but you're right. It includes everything. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend for someone like me? Should I copy and paste some of that over to something that I use on Google Docs? So it's a one pager or one page per goal. What do you think about that? Yeah, I there's not a specific draft format that I would send home. I've never I've never seen one. There are thousands of IEP writing systems out there. I wish that we could just all like I wish there were 10 at least so that yeah. when students move state to state or district to district, they look a little bit alike. But I think if you just copy and paste your present levels into a Word doc and you label it proposed IEP draft or present levels for this day, as long as you have it labeled and as long as it's dated so that the parent knows when this came home and if for God forbid, you know, you have due process, the date is on there, all of the information is on there that's needed, but just copying and pasting them into a Google Doc, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. And then would make it so you're only sending home the things that, like you said, these are facts or it is proposed. It's not set in stone. It's not done. This isn't the only way um, or the only option, but it's it's there. Because I do think oftentimes parents are overwhelmed when you sit in a meeting and you have 14 things that you wish you would have asked after you leave. Where if you had some of that before, you might be able to be like, yes, I see this too. Or I was wondering about that, you know, where they they have that information in advance. Yes, the draft IEP really levels the playing field for everyone at the IEP team. Because typically everyone on the IEP team, when we all go to sit at that round table or that rectangle table, the school professionals all know what the data says. Yep. But the parent walks in and they have no idea. Nine times out of 10, the parent has no idea what the data says. So it's just leveling that playing field, giving them the same information that we have going into that meeting and really making them a collaborative part of the process so that they have time to not only look at it, but also sleep on it. Because when they read it, they're going to may have emotions. You know, it's very energy charged. IEP meetings always are, whether good or bad. Gives them time to sleep on it. Gives them time to highlight it, write all over it, ask questions, talk to you before the meeting to see if they want to change anything. It just really opens up those lines of communication with the family and really builds rapport and makes them feel like part of the IP team, which they are. I can also speak to kind of the other side of it in a silly story way. Um, I had a parent who we were doing our initial conference and, you know, we're sitting around the table, we're talking and she brought her mom with her, which was fine. You know, the more the merrier. So after we do, she sits there silently other than her introduction, just taking it all in, you know? So then after we go through all the things, she said, could you explain to me, um, what are you going to do? What research-based strategies are you going to use? And just starts drilling me. And then after I answer her questions and all that, she told me, she said, good job. You gave me all the answers I wanted. And I'm like, oh, good thing. (laughs) Like This was like a job interview or something. 
she was a retired teacher. And so part of that is like, well, somebody could have given me a heads up that I have this retired teacher sitting in front of me. That's kind of what we do though, to parents, Mm -hmm. we go in with information that they don't know. And it doesn't feel very good when you're the one without the information. Yeah. So, and to add to the story, my husband had that student way back in kindergarten, like he was in second or third grade. I don't know. And he said, oh yeah, grandma comes to all the conferences. I should have told you that. And I'm like, well, thanks. Like, you couldn't. <laughs> So it doesn't feel good to be the one that's sitting there where everybody else at the table knows something that you don't. Yeah. You don't want it. And, you know, most people can handle that or it'll be fine, but we don't want to put parents in that situation to feel like they're on the outside. Yeah. Because more than likely they already do feel that way. Exactly. But they are our biggest allies when it comes to that student. They know their kid better than any of us sitting at the Mm -hmm. IEP table ever will. So it's important to just loop them in with everything. And it only takes, what, another minute or two to copy and paste and print and stick it in a backpack. Okay, Stephanie, question for you. You have a program called the Intentional IEP. Why did you choose the word intentional? Why the Intentional IEP? Yeah. So when I created the intentional IEP, it was, well, let me start here. So I love writing IEPs. I have always loved writing IEPs, even when I was doing things wrong and copying and pasting and writing 80% accuracy. It was always something that I'd love doing. I'd love the paperwork. I'd love the data. And after I left the traditional classroom setting and I was just trying to find my place, you know, in education still, I was like, well, I love writing IEPs. I still love doing this. And there are advocates out there. I don't want to be an advocate because I don't want to be an angry advocate. And I know how it feels to have the advocate sit at the IEP meeting. You're like shaking in your boots, right? And I was like, well, I should just like create a program for teachers that teaches them what we should have learned in college because I love I'm a nerd. I love reading special ed law. I love reading the books about IEPs and data. And I know a lot of teachers don't have the time for that, but I can do that. And I can be that resource for teachers. And as I was thinking about, you know, writing IEPs and coming up with the name for the intentional IEP, I really just sat down and I wrote out how I wanted teachers to feel their IEP writing was when it came to just writing IEPs and intentional was one of the words that I wrote down because, you know, IEPs have to be individualized, but they also also have to be very intentional with not only the wording we're choosing, but the data that we're using to make decisions and everything about IEPs is intentional. And that's kind of how that came to be. I think that's wonderful. And even just reminding us Every day, what we're doing, we have to be intentional about that. We can't just fly by the seat of our pants here or there. It has to be intentional. Yes. So that we can ensure our students are growing and learning and doing all the things that we want. And we talk at our school a lot, even about like intentional planning and how sometimes, you know, yeah, you do just talk about a vocabulary word because it came up in conversation. But what if we were intentional about the words that we're choosing? And the same is true of IEP writing. Yeah, we could just go with something because it works. But what happens if we're more intentional about what we're doing every day? 
Right. Like, why are you choosing the accommodations that you're choosing and how do they align with the IEP goals? And it's a lot of times things that we don't really think about, but they're simple things that actually make IEP writing so much easier when you sit and ask yourself those questions and connect the dots. It makes it easier not only to implement the IEP, but also explain it to the parent so that they understand what's going on. Yes, absolutely. So how could people join your program and what what would they get if they chose to sign up for that? Yeah, so you can go to theintentionaliep.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram as The Intentional IEP. And just click join now. And what it is, is it's a monthly or yearly membership that you can join. It gives you access to an IEP goal bank with over 13,000 IEP goals in there. So remember how we were talking about copying and pasting. This is one of those good times that you can copy and paste. You put in your own criteria, put in the student's name and all of that. But then you also are going to get access to a member's resources only area where it has different printables that you can use to help keep your IEPs and your IEP writing self-organized throughout the school year. And then every month there are guest trainings and trainings by me provided inside for members only. There are typically three, some months have four. And then during the summer, we do the summer PD series. We actually have a winter PD series coming up this winter, which I've not announced anywhere except for here yet. So if you're listening, you're the first to hear it. Um, But I bring in guest experts that are in the field that are special education teachers, speech pathologists, occupational therapists, um, just everyone in the special education team, everyone on an IEP team comes and I bring them in to just teach you about different things and hear different perspectives. And all of that is included in your membership and you can just go to the intentionaliep.com. Well, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast and uh, you're just wonderful. I think people need you to keep doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I love doing what I'm doing. So I will keep, I will keep on trucking. (laughs) And you know what, even too, I know last time we talked a little bit about why you've been in so many states and districts and it's your husband's job. And I think maybe it's meant to be like, you got a little bit of experience in the areas that you need. And then now you're rocking it in all of these things. And unlike me, I've only taught in Indiana. I've only used one system to write IEPs. I don't know what others go through. I don't know. In fact, I wrote a a blog post once about writing present levels of performance, a plop. And then other people are like, we can't write plops. We could never do this. We have to write P-L-L-I-P or I don't. Oh, it's the plop. Yes. And I'm like, or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you getting to be in multiple places that's an asset that teachers could really take to and and draw from that so that they can become better, more confident IB writers that know what they're doing and not just following blindly what everybody else has done. And have the data to back it up to advocate for the services that your students actually need. There you go. You're wonderful. Well, thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you too. Thanks for having me. Bye. Well, my friend, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Resource Room Podcast. I truly, truly love to help and support other special ed teachers. Because of that, I run a Facebook group just for us. Search the Resource Room and request to join. You can also check out my website, theprimarygal.com, for blog posts, pictures, and more information. Until next time, have a great week.